If you brought a Bible, open it to the book of Mark, chapter 11. I should mention that if you don't have a Bible, don't fear or rummage through your bag as if you, in fact, do have a Bible. Um, You can follow along on the screen behind me. And I would also say that if you're not familiar with how the Bible works, uh, the big numbers are called chapters. The little numbers are verses. So when I say Mark 11, flip like two-thirds of the way through the Bible, it's the second book of the New Testament, and... Look for the big number 11 and you'll be good to go. Mark 11. We've been studying this gospel for, believe it or not, almost a year now. Whole year in Mark. And I'm grateful we've been taking our time, folks, because the Lord is helping us answer uh, two questions week after week. I'm tempted to poll you and see if we remember this. Okay, question one. Anybody know? Say it loud. I hear it whispering. Who is Jesus? Yes. Question two. Mumbling, mumbling. What does it mean to follow him? Yeah, when, I, when I'm teaching the uh, middle or high school students, we have a smaller room, fewer people. It's, I can hear better. But yeah, those are the two questions, right? Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And Mark's got both of those in view as he writes the end of chapter 11. So let's hear the word of God beginning in verse 27. Verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking, Jesus, in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority... Are you doing these things? Or or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word now? I pray that in my weakness you would show yourself strong. And I ask that I, along with my brothers and sisters, would be faithful to listen to your Holy Spirit now. And that you would take the words that come out of my mouth and make them alive in the heart of men. We come here because we desire to change, not to have our ears tickled. And I pray that change would take place, even as we're listening now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
I'm not going to recommend all of you go home and, regardless of age, watch this movie, but I think The Matrix is somewhat of a classic. And a man named Neo, if you're not familiar with this film, played by Keanu Reeves, in one scene, he has his brain, maybe, maybe remember this, plugged into a futuristic computer that has the ability to upload vast quantities of information into Neo's brain in a matter of minutes. So in one scene, his, his eyes go wide, he's, he's laying down, this computer is inserted into his skull, and he sits quietly in the chair during the upload, and then he's lying there, and the upload is done, and he turns to look at a boss man named Morpheus, and he says, I know Kung Fu. And Morpheus says, show me. And of course, Neo proceeds to get up and demonstrate martial arts skills that typically require like thousands of hours of practice to obtain. And he got it in a few minutes. And I think about that scene in the movie and I think, oh, that all learning was like that. I'm, I'm in school right now. I'm working on my master's degree in divinity. And how I would love to just be able to sit down, you know, plug in some computer and just lay there and, you know, in a matter of minutes, I mean, I'm not so big on Kung Fu, but like, I know Greek <laughs> or I know Hebrew or I know, I know U.S. history. I mean, just, just imagine most of us have been in school. Just think about in minutes acquiring all you would ever want to know about Spanish, calculus, U.S. history, medicine, engineering, computer programming, music. I mean, you pick the topic, in minutes, it's yours. No, no lectures, no homework, no exams, no studying students, effortless knowledge. No work required. That would be amazing. But, all the teachers in here know, (laughs) that is not how the world works. It's not how the world works. If if you want to know something, you have to work at it. You have to read. You have to study. You have to take exams. You have to learn. You have to practice. It's, It's true as a student. It's true as a parent. It's true as an employee. Gaining knowledge takes work. It's also true as a Christian. But folks, I think so often we don't live that way when it comes to us and God. We want to be Neo. We say we want to know God. We say we want to experience the joy and peace that comes from relationship with him. But we're not willing to pay the price. We want these things. We want this knowledge of God, but we're not willing to pay the price. Because in one sense, 
God has scattered the knowledge of him all over the created world. Okay, you don't, you don't have to be literate or even have heard the gospel to know that there is a God in heaven, that he is not like us, and that we are accountable to him. Okay, you, you can get that much just from beholding the glory of creation. Paul teaches us in Romans 1, or as David says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the reality of God and our need for a Savior are not a secret. They've been hardwired into your world. But there's another kind of knowledge of God that's, that's much more personal. It's, it's much more specific. It's, it's the knowledge of God as Savior. Okay, the knowledge of God as Father. It's, it's not an abstract knowledge that, that we gain from looking at the world or listening to our conscience. It's an experiential knowledge. If you would, it's a relational knowledge. It's an interpersonal knowledge. It's, it's the kind of knowledge of God that enables you to say things like this when your life feels like a wilderness. Psalm 63. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. And your right hand upholds me. That's not abstract. That's not. That is relational knowledge. That is experiential knowledge. I think that's the kind of knowledge that, that honestly, many of us would say we want. That kind. But folks, so often I don't think we're willing to pay the price. You know what the price is? Submission. Submission. The great obstacle to knowing God in that kind of way is not ultimately a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the will. What we need most is not more information about God, right? What we need most is a new heart, a new spirit, a new will that gladly submits to the authority of God. Why? Why is that necessary? Because submission to God paves the way for relationship with God. Okay, I'll say that again. Submission to God is what paves the way for relationship, that experiential knowledge of God. Not abstract knowledge, relational knowledge. If you want that, then you have to submit. And that is the big obstacle that lies in our way. I mean, do do you want the peace of relationship with Him? Do you want to experience God in that kind of way? Do you... Do you want to know Him 
personally, then you have to be willing to submit to his authority. Listen to Psalm 81. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But what? My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not Submit to me. She wouldn't submit. And because we're Americans, we despise that word. I mean, our our country was born, right? And we won't submit, King George. We haven't been very good at it since then. And if you want to boil down Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders in Mark 11 that I just read down to one essential question, church, it's this. If you would, Mark, Mark boils down everything about your relationship with God down to one simple question for you in this chapter. Are you willing to submit to the authority of Jesus? That is the most important question you can ever answer. And I would add, you don't move on from that question. Okay, you've got to ask and you've got to answer that question every day you wake up. And the issue of authority and submission doesn't come as a surprise. So Jesus, the day before, had pretty much made the local headlines. If you remember from, from last week when Josh preached, he went and went into the temple and made a mess of things. I mean, this, this was no Jesus meek and mild. This was Jesus clearing out merchants who were selling stuff in the courtyard. He was overturning tables of money changers. I mean, I was tempted to have a table up here with money on it and just flip it. And you could hear it and, whoa, he did that? Yes, he did. He was angry. Jesus got angry. It was righteous anger. But the Jewish religious leaders had turned what was supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. And he was hot about it. And so it's no surprise, given he had pretty much stopped all traffic in the temple for a day at the biggest Jewish festival of the entire year, Passover, that Jesus, when he comes back into the temple the next day, lo and behold, who walks up to him but a delegation from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the highest Jewish court in the land and consisted of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So these guys just, oh, hey, I didn't know you were here. You want to talk to Jesus? Okay, no. This was an official delegation with a bone to pick with Jesus. And though Jesus' interaction with them is short, folks, I'm convinced it's long enough to help us understand why submission to God paves the way for relationship with God. So let's look at this conflict between them. Okay, point number one. First thing we need to see here. We lack relationship with God because we don't want to submit to Him. We don't want to. The problem is not just that we don't 
The problem is that we don't want to. Notice how the Jewish religious leaders frame their question to Jesus. Look at verse 28. What do they say? By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? It sounds like they're kind of asking Jesus two questions. You can pick one. But but no, it's really one question. It boils down to this. Jesus, by whose authority are you doing these things? But if you've been reading Mark and you see this in context, you know that's not really a question. I mean, you ever, you ever been in a conversation with somebody, maybe your spouse or one of your kids, and they ask you a question, it's just like, dude, that is not a question. That's, I mean, at best, that's a rhetorical question. That, you know what? Charitably judging you, that's a conclusion in disguise. That's what that is. Question. Well, that's what was going on here. Right? Premise one. Jewish religious leaders. We're in charge. Premise two, we did not give you any of our authority. Conclusion, what right do you have to walk onto our turf and take over? That is the conclusion behind the question. And we know that because in Mark eleven eighteen, after Jesus cleansed the temple, Mark Mark tells us this. Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, what he had done in the temple, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Isn't that interesting? Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Think about this. Why did the Jewish religious leaders get so hot when the crowd was astonished at Jesus' teaching? We know why? Because it meant the crowd was no longer astonished at their teaching. (laughs) Jesus had stolen the crowd. And he was undermining their authority. They were losing their authority to Jesus. And so on the surface, their question sounds like this ignorance looking for spiritual knowledge. Jesus, you know, we we just love to know. We really want some illumination here. Uh, By whose authority are you doing this stuff? No. No, their ignorance, ignorance is not innocent. It's not innocent. It's really jealousy looking for vindication. And here's what I want to caution you, church. It is really easy to call that out, context of Mark, call that out and critique their motive. But if you are pointing your finger at the Jewish religious leaders with me right now, you know who your finger ought to point to next? You. You. Why do I say that? Because the great obstacle that kept them from willingly following Jesus is the same obstacle that keeps you and me from following Jesus. Same obstacle. What was true back then, it's true today. It's, it's not a lack of spiritual knowledge. It's an unwillingness to submit to Jesus' authority. Their problem? Our problem. You know, now, when I say that, it's our, the great obstacle to knowing God is not a spiritual knowledge issue. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. So, Christian apologetics, answering knowledge questions about the faith, that is critical in the life of the church. It's critical. So it really helps 
to have somebody explain how do we know the Bible's true when there's so many other religions in the world? Or, or how, do, how does the Bible reconcile the problem of evil? Or, or how does science and Christianity work together? Or, or why would a good God send, send people to hell? Okay, those are all really good questions that have solid biblical answers. But here's what I'm saying, and here's what Mark is showing us in this passage. Beneath, beneath all our intellectual objections, questions, about following Jesus lies something deeper. Okay, something more sinister, more deadly, more determinative. In your heart, there is a willful opposition to the authority of God. And that's because every one of us is born with what I like to call an innate allegiance to me. (laughs) Okay, you can think about that. Have you ever seen a bumper sticker? You know, I've got an innate allegiance to me. And we, we come out of the womb fighting for our will to be done. I mean, it's just the opposite of the Lord's Prayer. You know, thy kingdom, no. My kingdom, my will be done. And barring divine intervention, folks, we die with our fist in the air. So here's what that means. There is no such thing as objective, morally neutral religious inquiry. There's no such thing. We are hardwired by virtue of our sinful nature. Okay, follow me here to see what we gosh darn it want to see about God. We are hardwired by virtue of our sinful nature to find what we better well want to find about God. Namely, supposed truths about God that keep Him in a convenient little box where He satisfies our felt need for love, approval, and forgiveness without ever threatening my personal autonomy. We love a God like that. We are all too happy to, you know, joyfully integrate a God like that into our life. Who meets all the needs that we have that we unfortunately haven't been able to meet, but but never pushes so far as to actually tell us to do something that we don't want to do. I mean, who wouldn't want that? It's like the ultimate grandpa. But it's not the Lord. We don't serve that kind of God. And the very questions that we ask about the Lord, like the religious leaders, they often reflect an internal resistance to any concept of reality where God is God and I have to submit to Him. We, we don't want that to be true. God is God. And I have to submit to him. So what do we do? Well, well, we create excuses. We create excuses. We we look for reasons to not go to church. I mean, here's a good one. You know, we relish the downfall of Christian hypocrites. Oh, look, another guy who said he was this, but, you know, really he did this. That's why I'm not a Christian. They're all hypocrites. Maybe if we get in a tight spot, or you run out of options, like I said, you'll, you'll toss up a prayer to the man upstairs, because that's the American thing to do. 
But otherwise, we are quite happy to hold God and his people at, at an arm's length. Where they can meet our needs occasionally, but we never have to obey or submit. And friend, if you're not a Christian, I, I want to challenge you this morning to just be honest. Just be honest. Acknowledge the fact that ultimately, the reason you're not following Jesus is because you just don't want to follow Jesus. You don't. We, don't. we don't like to admit that. We would much prefer to blame our spiritual rebellion on things like controlling parents, an abusive spouse, maybe a bad church experience. Are those things real? Yes. Yes, are they real influences and part of the fabric of your life? Yes, but you know what they're not? They're not determinative. They're real, they're influential, but they're not determinative. You know what's determinative? Your will. God's word couldn't be more clear. Our failure to know and follow Jesus ultimately rests on our shoulders. Our spiritual ignorance is not innocent. We lack relationship with God because we don't want relationship with God, because we don't want to submit to the authority of God. It's the first thing we need to see. We're like the leaders. Second, I have only two points this morning. The two great obstacles to submitting to the authority of God, ready, are pride and the fear of man. It's very simple. I could almost just go home now. Okay, The reason we don't have a relationship with God is because we don't want to submit to the authority of God. Well, why don't we want to submit to the authority of God? Two things. Pride and the fear of man. So let's think about this. Let's think about this. Look at verse 30. Verse 30. What's Jesus do here? They ask a question. Jesus pulls a fast one and responds with a question of his own. Question. Guys, delegation. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? I mean, you read that at first, when I was reading that, you think, I thought we were talking about apples, not bananas. Like, what's up with John and his baptism, and what does that have to do with Jesus' authority? Well, if you've been following in Mark, you know from chapter 1 that that's not the first time you've heard about this dude named John who's baptizing. And in Mark 1, we read about a prophet, John, who preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins just before Jesus began his ministry. And here's what John was after. Because he's sometimes a misunderstood figure. It's kind of like, why did this strange guy in camel hair just show up before Jesus? I mean, that's kind of bad PR. Well, here's what John was doing. Let me tell you what John was doing. John was warning the Jews to not presume that they had relationship with God, that experiential relational knowledge of God, simply because of their cultural heritage or family connections. And if, if John was running around in camel skin today, you know what he would substitute for those two things? Going to church and being a good person. Warning the people of God, don't presume because you go to church, you're a good person, that you've got a genuine knowledge, genuine relationship With God, you've got to examine your life for the fruit of repentance. Because you can't say you're a Christian if you can't point to different areas of your life where by the grace of God, you're becoming more like Jesus. 
You can't do that. You, Christianity isn't some sort of badge you acquire via church attendance and hanging out with good people. It comes from submitting your life to the authority of God every day. And John was warning the people, you're not doing that. Whoa, how do you know me, John? Well, look at your life. There's no evidence that you have laid down your preferences, your priorities, your desires in exchange for his preferences, his priorities, and his commands. I mean, that's harsh. I mean, it just feels harsh to say, but it was true. It was true. But John didn't just preach repentance. He preached Jesus. And he said that after him was going to come one, quote, who is mightier than I. an understatement. God was coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John said that one was going to come who was going to so baptize us, so transform us with the Holy Spirit that we would have a new heart and a new will that was willing to submit to the Lord. That's what John was foretelling. And by responding to a question about his authority, with a question about John's authority, Jesus is connecting his ministry with John's ministry. In other words, think of it like this. Leaders, if you accept the divine origin of John's ministry, then you've got to accept the divine origin of my ministry because I'm the one to whom John pointed. If you accept him... It's from the Lord and not just crazy camel guy. Then you have to accept me. Jesus was exposing the underlying cause of their opposition to his authority by using their treatment of John as an example. Because, let's face it, Jesus knew the answer to that question. He wasn't, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. You know, was John's ministry from God or from man? You know, I, I, so I created the world, but I kind of missed that one. He, no, he knew the answer to the question. But he asked them because he knew that the two issues, like I've said, that kept the leaders from recognizing John's authority as a prophet were the same two issues keeping them from recognizing Jesus' authority as the Son of God. Two issues, pride, the fear of man. So let's, let's look at pride. Okay, look at verse 31. Where do we see pride here? What do they say? If we say, thinking amongst themselves, deliberating, if we say from heaven, Jesus will say, well, why then did you not believe him? Can you follow with me here? Okay, the Sanhedrin never believed, never, that John was from heaven. They never humbled themselves and repented. But notice something, church. Notice how what they actually believed about John has no perceivable effect on how they answer the question. What what is true is irrelevant to them. Notice that. They, They don't care where John actually came from. What they care about is avoiding any admission of error or wrongdoing. Pride 
causes us to not care about what's true. All we care about is not being wrong. That's the effect of it. So I want you to think about something. Think about this. When a friend confronts you, could substitute spouse, parent, sibling, relative, pastor, whatever. When a friend confronts you and points out either lovingly or not so lovingly an area of sin or weakness in your life, how do you respond? Because here's where the rubber meets the road. This is the test. A humble man asks questions and listens carefully in an effort to understand What's true? What really happened and why it happened? But a proud man doesn't care about the truth. A proud man just wants to be right. That's all he cares about. He immediately begins throwing up all manner of defenses, excuses. He will say anything. He will say whatever it takes to avoid admitting He's wrong. Because pride, by definition, is a claim to be perfect. Or, if not perfect, more perfect than the person who dared to talk to you. And because I must be right, I am always right, And because I'm always right, I deserve to be in charge. And if you so much as dare to suggest that I ought to submit to your authority in some way, the answer is no, because for me to submit to your authority would be for me to suggest and know in certain terms that you are right and that you deserve to be in charge. And I'm not cool with that. That's, that's untenable to the proud man. And it's a temptation that's common to man. But folks, here's, here's one of my concerns for us. I think if I went up to any of you after the meeting today and I said, you know, hey, do you struggle with pride? Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost like, do you ever drive over the speed limit? Yeah. You know, me too. Hey, want to go to lunch? Yeah, I'll drive over the speed limit. You know, it's... <laughs> It's just like we, we, because it's common to man, which it is, we stop taking it seriously. Folks, this is a big time warning from Mark. If you want to know God, you have two enemies standing in your way. Pride and fear of man. It's that big of a deal that big of a deal because here's the problem with pride it's a claim to be God it's common to man yes checkbox but it is cosmic truth that's convicting because I'm a proud man I want my kingdom to come and my will to be done. I don't think I'm alone. 
but yet the Lord tells us in his word, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Matthew. No. (laughs) No. Don't put your name in there either. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who said, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? Listen, my glory I will not give to another. You need, you need to put your name in that verse. God says to you, my glory I will not give to you. I mean, see the Lord looking in your eyes. Son, daughter, my glory I will not give to you. Matthew. Because I oppose the proud, but I give grace to the humble. And so church, I want to exhort you, whenever you find yourself caring more about being right than what is true, pride lies close at hand. And few sins are more effective at keeping us off the path of submission to God and out of relationship with God. That's the first one. Here's the second. We'll wrap up with this. Here's the second obstacle to submission and relationship. The fear of man. Okay, look at verse 32. If saying that the baptism of John was from heaven was undesirable, saying that the baptism of John, his ministry, was from men was unthinkable. You know how I know that? Because they don't even finish the sentence. Did you pick that up? Look at 32. But shall we say, from man? That's it. It's so unthinkable that they would say that, they don't even verbalize what would happen. Mark has to tell us. They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John, the people held, really was a prophet. Notice again here, that what the Sanhedrin cares about is just not what's true. I mean, what was true? What was the true answer to Jesus' question? Well, Jesus, here's the truth. I think it was from man. That's why I didn't believe him. And you're from man too. I don't believe you. That was the truth. But they don't even care about what's true. All they care about, first of all, is protecting their pride, and secondarily, what protects their reputation. It works like this. Wherever pride is present, fear of man is almost always present. Think of it this way. Pride is like a presidential candidate, of which we seem to have way too many right now, looking for a constituency. Why? What did I say pride is? A claim to be God. What does God need if God's going to be God? People that will acknowledge Him as God. So when I am proud, when I believe that I am God, I go looking for a constituency, for a following, for support. And naturally... I don't find it with God. (laughs) Right? God is not, yeah, you know, I'll vote for you. Matthew for God. No. So I have to look to you and try to get you to treat me that way. We compromise our moral convictions because we want our, our boyfriend or girlfriend to like us. We we refuse to engage in constructive conflict with our spouse because we're afraid 
still reject us. We hesitate to worship God expressively. We're reluctant to share our faith with people. We, we refuse to do anything publicly like this that we're not sure we can do perfectly. Why? Why, why do we do all that? Because we're codependent? No, because we're idolaters. We're idolaters. We, in our pride, say, I am God. And then in our fear of man, we say, you are God. Either way, he's not. Pride, I am God. Fear of man, you are God. Guess who's not God? The real God. And God is this uncanny way, church, of calling us to do things that honor him with our our money, our time, our sexuality, that make no sense to the world. That don't get a following, if you would. John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Translation, they're not so happy with you. They don't give you the adulation. They don't treat you like God when you're following the real God. Christian, we have to hear this. We, if you were in Christ Jesus, you are not of the world. You're not of the world. God has saved you out of the world. You have a new master. You have a new heart. You have a new will. You have a new spirit. And you're living for a different finish line. So you have to learn to say with humble courage, with Paul. But it's for me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And if you're a a teenager or a college student, I want to particularly appeal to you on this point about the fear of man. Don't treat like God. What God says is like grass. Say that again. Don't treat like God. What God says is like grass. Where do I get that? Isaiah 40. All flesh, think all people, your co-worker, your spouse, your boss, your boyfriend, all flesh is grass. I mean, he doesn't even give us the credibility of it's it's light grass, but maybe like something else. No, it's just, it's grass. All grass. It's grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So young person, don't build your life on the fleeting opinions of people. It's not going to last. Build your life on the unshakable word of God and his goodness and his kingdom and his authority. You're you're not going to be disappointed. So here's the conclusion. I hope it's clear by now. We lack relationship with God because we don't want to submit to God's authority. And the two reasons we don't want to submit to God's authority are pride and the fear of man. So I want to leave you, church, with a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. Here's the warning. If you refuse to submit to God's authority, you will never know God. Never. The last verse is sobering. They answered Jesus, we don't know. Translation, we're not going to submit. 
Jesus said to them, look at these words. Neither then will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you want to know God, you have to submit to his authority. They failed to understand Jesus because they refused to submit. But here's the promise. Okay, here's the promise. And this, this promise, I think, is implied in Jesus' words in verse 29. Look back at 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And we tend to skip over this. And I will tell you. Notice that. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Friend, God is not reluctant to reveal himself to you. God is eager to reveal himself to those who are willing to submit. But here's what I want you to realize. There are many things about God and relationship with God that make no sense until you choose to submit to him. You just won't get it. It won't make sense. But then as you begin to take baby steps and choose to submit areas of your life to the Lord, all sorts of things about who he is and the way he works, it's like the lights start to come on. But it was submission to God that paved the way for relationship with God. That's the promise. And ultimately, it's a call to faith. Because faith sees the allure of the world. Faith feels the pull of our flesh. Faith hears the whisper of the devil and keeps choosing to say, Jesus is better. That's what faith does. And that's why we sing songs like this. There's a treasure great in beauty, far surpassing earth's great wealth. He is Jesus, King of nations, Source of all grace, peace, and health. There's a fountain ever flowing, satisfying all who drink. He is Jesus, spring of joy to all who hail him as their king. Oh, Lord, would you help us to do that? Thank you for warning us. Thank you for instructing us that if we want to know you, not just once but every day of our life, intimately, relationally, we must choose to submit to you. And God, I pray today that we would do that that as we sing these songs, as we share the Lord's Supper, that you would take every part of our wandering heart and bow it before King Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the grace of conviction, for the way even right now your Holy Spirit is calling to our minds areas of life, where we have either just totally not submitted to you or we have kept flip-flopping. And God, if we're honest, our sin has affected our relationship with you. We're, we're grateful for the gospel. We know that, that we are forgiven, but Lord, we don't feel as close to you when we're running away. 
surprise, surprise. And so God, I pray today that what is true for us in Jesus, that you have brought us near, would become true for us in our everyday experience. What we know positionally would be tasted experientially as we learn to submit. Help us.